0: In this recording, Alex Barber, the author of book three, talks about utilitarianism in its classical and modern forms with Brad Hooker, professor of philosophy at the University of Reading. Brad, you're a utilitarian, but you're not a classical utilitarian, in that you don't try to defend Jeremy Bentham's or John Stuart Mill's version of that view. I want to come to your views in a moment, but let's talk first
1: about the classical version. What did Bentham and Mill agree about? Bentham and Mill agreed that moral and political justification should focus on the gains and losses to welfare, or what they called utility. They also agreed that gains and losses to welfare or utility should be assessed impartially. And by impartial assessment, what they meant was that a gain or loss to any one person should count for the same, exactly the same, as the same size gain or loss to anyone else. And in addition to that, they also agreed that welfare should be understood hedonistically, that is, as pleasure minus pain. Mill and Bentham were both classical utilitarians, but they did disagree about some things. That's right. They disagreed in their conception, actually, of pleasure minus pain. Bentham was a quantitative hedonist, or he thought that only really the quantity of pleasure minus pain matters. In the quantity of pleasure or pain, he took into account intensity and duration, but not quality. Mill thought that that was a mistake that you should include not only intensity and duration, but also the quality of pleasures and pains. And in particular, Mill thought that pleasures that come from the higher sensibilities or the intellect were better than pleasures that come from the kind of animalistic sensations. They also disagreed in that Bentham held a view which we now know of as act-utilitarianism. Now, what was Mill? Well, Mill was sometimes... Sometimes he says things that look act-utilitarian sometimes he says things that look rule utilitarian. And when students ask, well, which was he? The answer is, well, they really hadn't quite formulated the distinction at the time. So he veers back and forth between these two views. So an act utilitarian applies the test of utility to acts and a rule utilitarian applies the test of utility to rules and then says that the right acts are the acts which comply with the rules with the most utility.
0: And can you give an example of where an act utilitarian would do one thing, whereas a rule utilitarian would do some other thing?
1: Yes, suppose that you and I happen to be in the locker room at the local swimming pool at the same time. And in my wallet is uh, 50 pounds and in your wallet is very little and you're quite hungry. We're not friends or anything, but you happen to notice that my wallet is fatter than yours and that you're quite hungry. And it occurs to you that you could take five or ten pounds out of my wallet and give yourself lunch with this five or ten pounds and thereby maximize utility because probably it's not going to harm me very much to lose the money and it would prevent you from a very hungry afternoon. So in that case, an act utilitarian might think that the right thing to do was indeed to steal the five or ten pounds, whereas a rule utilitarian would say, gosh, imagine a society where people went around stealing five or ten pounds from other people whenever they thought that this would produce a bit more utility, especially utility for themselves. Surely that would be a very unhappy society. People would be very nervous about other people. And consequently, a rule utilitarian would think such an act of stealing would be unjustified, and an act of utilitarian might think that such an act of stealing might be justified.
0: So there are these two important differences between Bentham and Mill. Do you think that Mill managed to plug all the holes in Bentham's theory? Let's start with what he says about pleasure, with what Mill says about pleasure, as set against what Bentham thinks about pleasure?
1: Bentham's quantitative hedonism does run into serious problems. If your welfare consists only in the quantity of pleasure you experience, then presumably, whenever you were aiming to maximize your welfare, you would just maximize the quantity of pleasure you experience. But on that basis, would you choose to live the life of a contented pig rather than a dissatisfied genius? If Your bliss was built on ignorance and lack of ambition. Would that be a better life than one that involved a bit more dissatisfaction, but which contained ambition and knowledge? Now, in response to worries like this, Mill, of course, developed the qualitative hedonism, which makes a distinction between higher and lower pleasures, higher pleasures being the ones that come from more refined sensibilities and intellectual capacities, and the lower pleasures coming from more animalistic appetites, And Mill defended the distinction between higher and lower pleasures by claiming that those who were acquainted with both competent judges would always prefer the higher pleasures over the lower pleasures. Now, opinion has been divided about whether Mill was successful in that line of argument. But more interesting, it seems to me, is the whole question, and and I think to most contemporary philosophers, more interesting is the question, well, is hedonism itself just too restrictive? No matter what version of Hedonism, is Hedonism itself just too restrictive? And the arguments against thinking that Hedonism is correct as a complete account of welfare are going to be ones that we're actually quite familiar with in contemporary culture. For example, movies like The Matrix and The Truman Show illustrate that somebody might seem to have introspectively discernible sensations or experiences, which taken as experiences seem very desirable. But because they involve massive illusion and perhaps in a kind of way in a fraud and distortion are less good than a life would be that involved a bit more dissatisfaction. But where the person was actually involved in real relationships of friendship and really had knowledge of their surroundings and were really achieving things.
0: So what is welfare if it's not pleasures of these kind, if it's not psychological states?
1: I mean, I accept that a huge component of welfare is pleasure in the absence of pain. The question is whether those are the only ingredients of welfare. It seems to me that other components of welfare are going to be friendship, knowledge, achievement, and autonomy. Well, let's take the example of friendship. If at the end of my life I look back
0: on some friendship I had with somebody and I think, well, that wasn't particularly pleasant Wouldn't it be reasonable for me to say that that wasn't in my interests, that that friendship was
1: actually bad for my welfare? Well, now, I agree that if a friendship results in massive suffering (laughs) and very little pleasure, then on balance, it wasn't good for the person who experienced the friendship. The cases that are more interesting are ones where a friendship will involve perhaps a little bit less pleasure for somebody than to not ever have had that friendship in the first place. I mean, suppose I form a friendship with someone and it goes along quite well and then she gets sick and she suffers terribly and because of my sympathetic concern for her, so do I um, over the last few years of her life. So that when you look at it just in terms of pleasure and pain, I have to admit that I got more pain out of that friendship than I got pleasure. Nevertheless, I might still think that my life was better for me because of that friendship than it would have been if I'd had no such friendship at all.
0: One question that's occurring to me about this revised conception of welfare, this not purely hedonistic conception of welfare, is how you would rank the different elements of welfare. Um, Because the other element of utilitarianism, of course, is consequentialism, which is all about maximizing welfare for everybody and bent them off as a way of ranking welfare, in terms of saying that some pleasures last longer, they're more intense than others, and similarly with pains. Mill gives us a way of ranking pleasures in terms of whichever the uh, competent judge would prefer. That's the the, the pleasure of the highest quality. How would you rank the different elements of welfare that you listed before, knowledge,
1: friendship, and pleasure, among others? I have to admit that a terrible danger here is artificial precision. I don't think there's a precise fact of the matter about how much exactly you need of pleasure, how much you need of friendship, how much you need of knowledge or achievement or autonomy in a particular person's life to maximize that person's welfare. And perhaps it varies but as between people to some extent. These are the same ingredients for everyone, but how to put these ingredients together might vary depending on the person. So you'd move away from Bentham's attempt to give very precise rules
0: about how to make everybody experience more pleasure and less pain?
1: I'm afraid I do. I, I'm open-minded that perhaps the future might be surprisingly quantifiable in a way that the present doesn't seem to be, but I have to say that I think current experience seems to suggest that false precision about these matters is one of the dangers to be avoided. Do you think Mill's Rule
0: utilitarianism,
1: when he was being a rule utilitarian, represented a real improvement over act utilitarianism. Oh, I do. I think it's a massive improvement. Remember that act utilitarianism holds that an act is right if and only if and because it maximizes utility. So act utilitarianism is going to be committed to thinking that an act of killing or stealing or breaking a promise or telling a lie is morally right as long as it produces at least slightly more utility than any of the alternatives available to the agent. Actually, the idea that killing an innocent person is morally right as long as it produces at least slightly more utility than not killing the innocent person, that idea is extremely counterintuitive. And those kinds of counterexamples to act utilitarianism have seemed to many people absolutely fatal to the theory. But can rule utilitarianism do any better? Well, according to the best formulation of rule utilitarianism, an act is morally wrong if it would be forbidden by a code of rules whose acceptance by more or less everyone would maximize expected utility. And when we ask ourselves, with the acceptance of a code of rules forbidding killing innocent people or stealing or breaking promises or telling lies, then we say, oh, yes, well, the, the code of rule, the acceptance of which would produce maximized utility, would indeed forbid these acts. And so rule utilitarianism can explain why those acts are wrong. Why, why would it forbid them? Rule utilitarianism would forbid such acts because when we imagine people with all the human weaknesses to which humans are prone trying to apply the rule maximize utility, we run into two problems. First of all, there's a terrible problem. Well, could they even calculate the utility consequences? Could they get the information they would need in order to calculate the utility consequences? And in very, very many cases, perhaps most cases, the answer to that question is no. But even if they could begin to calculate the utility consequences, can we trust them to calculate them impartially? And the answer to that question has also got to be no. So a rule utilitarian would say, look, it it would actually produce way less utility if people ran around trying to calculate the utility consequences in case-by-case basis, rather than just sticking to these tried and tested rules. But doesn't rule utilitarianism face objections of its own? It does, and many people have thought these objections are fatal. The most common objection to rule utilitarianism is that it's incoherent, since rule utilitarianism sometimes requires us not to maximize utility. How can... the Be that rule utilitarianism, which is fundamentally utilitarian, sometimes tells us not to maximize utility. But I think that objection is mistaken because it assumes that rule utilitarianism includes an overriding duty to maximize utility. And I don't think that the code, the acceptance of which by everyone would produce the most utility, would include a rule that's an overriding rule always maximize utility. So I think that the objection that rule utilitarianism is incoherent actually won't wash. Bentham
0: didn't think that his utility principle could be defended or that it needed to be defended because it was just so glaringly obviously true. And he comes across as quite dogmatic and almost insulting towards those who disagree with him. How would you argue in favor of utilitarianism in your version of it anyway? Or do you agree with Bentham that it doesn't need a defense?
1: Oh, I certainly think it needs a defense. And it seems to me the way to argue in favor of rural utilitarianism, or indeed any other kind of utilitarianism, is not to start with a utilitarian premise, but instead to start with the contention that, of all the moral theories out there, this form of utilitarianism makes the best sense of our considered moral convictions. Now, what do I mean by making the best sense of our considered moral convictions? Well, for one thing, we want a moral theory that agrees with our considered moral convictions about what's right and wrong in specific cases. And that was, remember, my objection to act utilitarianism. In addition to that, not only do we want agreement about what's right in specific cases, but we also want a moral theory which provides an impartial, unifying, fundamental principle that justifies our various specific moral convictions. But don't our considered moral convictions change over time,
0: making it impossible to provide an impartial justification of any moral theory? I'm thinking, for example, that in ancient Greece, slavery was regarded as perfectly okay, in fact, unavoidable. But now we don't take that view.
1: Oh, I agree that perhaps a rule utilitarian view wouldn't be defensible to an ancient Greek person who defended slavery. I I admit that If somebody has a certain set of convictions, then perhaps rule utilitarianism is not going to make best sense of them. But what I'm trying to do is offer rule utilitarianism as a theory that at least you and I and the people I'm likely to run into could agree to. And in justifying it to those people, I'm going to ask, what convictions do they share? And then I'm going to put forward rule utilitarianism as the best explanation for why those convictions are correct. I admit, actually, I want to say emphatically, that perhaps no fundamental, impartial, unified principle is adequate. My contention only is this, that if there is a fundamental, unified, impartial principle that will succeed in justifying our various moral convictions, then the theory that is constituted by that principle must be the best moral theory from our point of view. What has classical utilitarianism's legacy been in terms of social policy? Classical utilitarianism has been a source of reform and many of the policies that we now take for granted. Mill was himself one of the great champions of equal rights for women, as an example, and Bentham one of the great early champions of considering the suffering of animals as well as humans. Utilitarians have tended to favour egalitarian social policies, But I think what's more important than the particular social policies that utilitarians have supported, are now supporting, is their general approach to social policy, which is that proposed social policies should be assessed in terms of the consequences on the welfare of everyone impartially calculated, and that the indirect as well as direct effects need to be taken into consideration. Rule utilitarianism does this, and in effect, I think it's established itself as the default approach to social policy decisions.
0: But hasn't this dominance of rural utilitarianism in recent social policy sometimes had quite a pernicious effect? And I'm thinking here of a tendency to promote only those policies whose effects can be measured, such as, for example, the ability to spell or do arithmetic or bringing down crime or getting more money. Isn't there a danger that social goods that are harder to measure like liberty or spontaneity or social cohesion or tradition these are all left to look after
1: themselves I, I mean i agree that perhaps reading bentham too much might push people towards looking for social policies with clearly quantifiable outcomes and in fact that can have bad consequences because many of the most important things are not precisely quantifiable at all and what we have to make do with is impressionistic and fairly vague judgments about when something is better or worse than something else. My view of welfare is that it's quantifiable, yes, but certainly not precisely so, and sometimes very hard to measure.
0: So you're a rule utilitarian. Are there any aspects of the theory or your version of it that leave you uneasy?
1: Well, first of all, I don't really call myself a rule utilitarian, but instead a rule consequentialist. And the difference is that it seems to me that in addition to considering the amount of welfare when we assess rules, we should also consider how that welfare is distributed, whether equally or unequally. And for this reason, I call myself a consequentialist rather than a utilitarian. But more generally, what's a problem for rule consequentialism is that, first of all, there may be some counterexample or set of counterexamples that you propose to me now or somebody else to proposes tomorrow that show that the theory, in fact, will not cohere with our considered moral convictions. So there's that potential fatality to the theory. And in addition to that, I'm not at all sure how the theory should accommodate fairness. And, in fact, that's the research I'm doing now. Brad Hooker, thank you very much.
0: From The Open University.